Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of The Other Side of the Truth. My name is Sahith, and I'm joined today by my close friend, Jesse. Hey, it's Jesse, and uh, thanks, Sahith, for having me on the show tonight. Yeah, of course. So basically, the overarching purpose of the podcast is to invite people with a criminal history on to get their side of the story and to give them a voice and hear about their experience with the justice system and the prison system. But of course, in the middle of the pandemic, it's made a bit more difficult to get in contact with people who may be willing to come on the show. So the initial episodes are going to focus on recent cases uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. Just a recap of the case and a discussion of the topics concerning the case. Today, we're going to focus on the murder of Nicole Lovell. And I actually chose this case as the topic of my first episode because one of the people involved was a woman named Natalie Keepers, who I went to high school with. And at the end, I'll just share my thoughts about her from my personal experience. And yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've, I've lived in the DMV area my whole life and I never, never heard about this story. But I'm, uh, I'm really interested to hear about it and uh, see what goes down. Yeah, this was actually, I think, uh, a pretty big case. It got nationwide coverage. But I, my friends and I from high school, we were definitely a bit more invested in this than the average person just because we knew one of the prime suspects. Yeah, so I'll just start with going over the case. Mm -hmm. So Nicole Lovell was actually first reported missing on Wednesday, January 27th, 2016, by her mother. She was 13 years old at the time. And four days later, David Eisenhower was arrested on Saturday, January 30th, 2016, as suspect in Nicole's disappearance. The next day, Sunday, Nally Keepers was arrested also as a prime suspect in Nicole's disappearance. So just some background information on Nicole. She's 13 years old. She was a liver transplant recipient when she was a baby, and she had needed to take medication for her condition twice a day since um, she was just 10 months old. At school, students were bullying her about her condition, and her social media posts show that she had suicidal thoughts, she was lonely, and she thought that no one cared about her. Uh, so this is a girl... This is a girl who is vulnerable, lonely, and desperately wants friends, so she turns to social media. This is where she first met David Eisenhower, actually. They started on an anonymous chatting app, and then they moved to Kick, which is another messaging app, uh, which is a bit more popular. David was a Virginia Tech freshman at the time, and his username on Kick was Dr. Tombstone. Wow, that, that is, uh, that's pretty ominous. Um... Yeah, considering the events that occur. Um, prior to January 27th, Nicole and David had been talking for months at this point on kick, and according to the messages, had probably been multiple times already. Uh, David is uh, 18 years old. He's a freshman engineering student at Virginia Tech, and he's also a burgeoning track star on the Virginia Tech cross-country team. On the surface, what he showed to other people, um, past teachers, past classmates and past people he worked with described him as cocky, charismatic, and intelligent. And you can actually see this because um, various news outlets had interviewed him just because of his running prowess. And he really seems like a person who knew he was that good. Um, he, he thought he deserved to be on TV. And he really didn't seem all that humble, so to say. You know who this reminds me a lot about? Um... It, it seems like it's very it's very similar to like the Ted Bundy story, especially from like the persona that he's trying to to convey at Virginia Tech. 
Yeah, I, I think it is a bit similar, but um, yeah, and I think going into his trial too, there's a couple similarities as well, and I'll touch on those a bit uh, mm -hmm. later. So, uh, yeah, so he he's described as cocky, charismatic, intelligent, and on the night of Nicole's abduction, she was just thinking it was another date. At, actually, she had told the kids living next door that she had thought uh, she was just going on a date that night, but. Um, the kids next door, they thought nothing of it. It was just, uh, she had just phrased it as she was going out with her boyfriend. So that night, she moved a dresser in front of her door so her mom couldn't enter her room. And she left through her second story window to meet David and unbeknownst to her, also Natalie that night. Uh, jumping forward a few days, um, Nicole had been missing for since Wednesday and the FBI had gotten involved uh, at this point, and FBI investigators had managed to track down David Eisenhower and managed to narrow him down as a prime suspect because Nicole wrote down all of her usernames and passwords for her social media accounts on her bedroom wall. Nicole's mom, um, Tammy Weeks, had reason to suspect Nicole was using Kick, but was purposely hiding it from her by uninstalling it and reinstalling it. And uh, the more days that pass, the higher the chance that Nicole would be found dead because, you know, this is a missing persons case. And that's just um, the more days that pass, the, the lower the chances get. And but the, this was just exacerbated because she needed to take anti-rejection medicine twice a day since she was a liver transplant recipient. And um, without this medicine, the risk of complication just grew and grew every day. So from this tip, actually, from uh, the tip that Nicole had been using Kick, the FBI sent in an emergency disclosure request to Kick to look at Nicole's personal profile and her messages. Uh, forensics experts with the FBI were then able to trace the IP address given to them by Kick to Virginia Tech and specifically David Eisenhower. They so on Saturday morning they first arrested David. And he he pretty immediately admitted to talking to Nicole outside of her house that previous Wednesday. He was charged with abduction at this point, and uh, he was arrested and taken to the station. He admitted all this um, when they came to his dorm room at Virginia mm -hmm. Tech. So at the police station, when he was being questioned, he did not confess to any of his charges. He basically tried to downplay his role, uh, any role he may have had. He just said that, he thought she was 16, 17, uh, and that's what she mentioned to him on kick, allegedly. And he admitted to talking to Nicole on kick and meeting her. But uh, as soon as he saw her for the first time that past Wednesday, um, he thought to himself that, oh, she's way too young for me, and he left immediately. And that was a story that he stuck to, at least for that first day. Uh, so at the, he's, he's denying his involvement. He's saying he got out of there immediately. And... At this point, he also tries to create an alibi for the time after um, he may have left, the time after he left Nicole's house, saying that he was buying a snow shovel with his friend, Natalie Keepers. And I think um, this goes back to his cocky attitude, actually. Uh, I, th I think he really believes that he could get away with this murder. Um, he believed that he orchestrated the, a crime that couldn't be traced back, so to say. And I just want to reiterate at this point that um, 
Yeah, he still wasn't admitting to anything, and he mentioned alley keepers as a way to maybe divert suspicion from him and maybe <laughs> place suspicion on her. Yeah, so the next day, Sunday, the police arrested Natalie Keepers, and she did the exact opposite of David, telling police what tra- actually transpired the prior week, at least from her uh, perspective and with the knowledge she had. So the prior week, um, on Monday, uh, Nicole was abducted on Wednesday of that week. On Monday, Nicole, Natalie and um, David had started making a plan to abduct Nicole. Tuesday is when the plan was finalized and they started buying supplies, such as a shovel, bleach, and gloves. Then Wednesday is when they drove to pick up Nicole and then they, they drove to a wooded area in Maryland where they eventually killed her. They actually left the body in North Carolina and they left Nicole's body near the road by David's grandparents' house. And Natalie is the one who told investigators all of this information and she confessed to basically everything. And um, the motive for this entire crime was that David thought that uh, Nicole would expose their relationship, uh, telling everyone that he was having a relationship with an underage girl, and also that she may have been, he thought that she may have been pregnant. Would it, would it have also been illegal, even if she was 16, with him being 18, is that not... I think I actually think there's Romeo and Juliet laws which make it more um not I mean of course society would still frown upon it, but I think in the eyes of the law it's not exactly illegal per se. Gotcha. Okay. So at this point, Natalie and David are arrested, charged, but the trial doesn't happen for two more years in 2018. And I think this is just natural this is just what happens with court cases. They take a long time to actually get to trial. So at trial, actually, David's lawyers tried to pin on Natalie, while Natalie's lawyers tried to pin on David. And, of course, as their legal team, they were just trying to get their clients better sentences. I don't think there was much doubt that both parties were going to be found guilty of their respective crimes. Um, David's lawyers argued that Natalie was a mastermind behind all of this. And they're argument consisted of a bloody handprint on the shovel that David and Natalie purchased. And they were arguing that the shovel matched Natalie's handprint and that it confirmed it was Natalie who committed the murder, not David. They even got a doctor to watch Natalie's interviews and without even meeting her, say that she had borderline personality disorder and that she was the one who manipulated and created the entire situation. Uh, As I mentioned before, this trial happened two years after in November 2018. And at this point, David and his lawyers are still arguing. They're still arguing that he's not guilty. However, in the middle of the trial, for whatever reason, I believe on the fourth day, David changed his plea from not guilty to no contest. This plea change was accepted by the judge, and David was ultimately found guilty. He ended up getting 75 years, 60 for the murder, 10 years for abduction, and five for hiding the body. He has to serve 50 years in prison and the rest on probation. Natalie, on the other hand, went on trial for accessory to murder. During her trial, neuropsychologists were called in and they diagnosed her with seven different mental disorders. And the defense tried to use this to argue that anything Natalie told the officers during her interviews might be unreliable. And they uh, tried to have all of that tossed out and 
not been available for the jury to see. They also tried to mention that she was highly gullible and could easily be manipulated, making her just another victim of David Eisenhower's. I remember, uh, I actually remember back on the, back when this was heavily covered on the news, they would mention this line that Natalie said uh, during her trial. He became a sociopath. He taught me as a sociopath in training. So I think here, uh, Natalie and team are trying to, you know, trying to minimize her involvement and trying to pin it all on David, saying that he manipulated both Nicole and Natalie. So, I, but I think, um, I think here in Natalie's case, actually, the prosecutors really dug deep, showing text messages to David from Natalie weeks before the murder, not just the week uh, of the murder, but weeks before, saying that, which indicated that they were planning something for a while to planning something to do with Nicole for a while, not just the week before they were arrested. And then after the murder, they showed a message of Natalie saying to David that he deserved a good night's sleep. And uh, after showing all this evidence, of course, the jury found her guilty, and they just took one hour to come to this conclusion together. Wow. She was sentenced to 45 years in prison, of which she only has to serve 40. Uh, 40 years for being an accessory to murder and five years for hiding the body. That's, that's, that's crazy because if she had a bloody handprint on the shovel, wouldn't that make you think that she's the one that actually killed the, like, did all the acts in murdering the body? Like, yeah. Did they, did they ever find out why she, where the bloody handprint came from? I'm not too sure, but I think... Um... I think the implication is that they were both pretty equally involved in this murder, but since David was the one who was actually talking to Nicole and he was the one with the motive for, you know, doing all this, he got the bigger sentence. But I think it's still, um, I, th I don't think it's possible for them to definitively say that, you know, it was one or the other who actually committed the murder. Well, yeah, I, I mean... I guess at this point it could have just been his guilty conscience that that made him plead guilty after withholding the truth or standing by his uh, non-guilty sentiment early on. Yeah, possibly. At the end of his trial, actually, he apologized to the Nicole's family. Mm -hmm. So it, it may well may have well been his guilty conscience causing him to change his plea. Yeah. Then. So from my personal experience with Natalie, I actually went to school with her elementary, middle, and high school. And honestly, I thought she was pretty normal. I didn't think she would ever be capable of doing something like this. I had a lot of classes with her in high school, and she was, she was pretty smart. She wanted to pursue engineering, I believe, in college. And um, yeah, when she was initially arrested, a lot of my friends... And a lot of the people I went to high school with couldn't believe it because Natalie was, um, it was just not something that we would have expected to see on the, uh, on the front page or whatever news channel we flipped to. I actually remember um, after she was arrested, one of my friends from high school messaged me and said, uh, yo, please tell me this isn't Natalie on the front page of CNN right now. And I was just as shocked as he was, honestly. Uh, I, I don't really know why this case exactly got... Uh, so much news coverage but i do remember all the nationwide outlets covering it so recently actually natalie tried to 
appeal on the grounds that her trial was unfair, but this was uh, rejected by an appeals court in April 2020. And Natalie and her team tried again, but it was rejected once more. Uh, her appeal was rejected one more time by the Virginia Supreme Court this time, recently, just as past December in 2020. Did, did she say why, why she believed her trial was unfair? Yeah, so um, just because of the mental disorders she was uh, diagnosed with, they were trying to argue that anything she had mentioned to the police during her pre-trial interviews should have been thrown out and should have never been shown to the jury. But obviously it didn't work out and both of her appeals were denied. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think some overarching themes of cases like these are... Uh, like the impact of social media and just how accessible it makes it for um, underage, uh, underage children to speak to predators and for predators to find their, you know, find their targets. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so Nicole was using um, Kick, and her mother had basically no idea that Nicole was talking to an older man who who was potentially dangerous and i think uh, a lot of these apps they their selling point their their entire their entire business plan is that they're completely anonymous instead of your real name they show a username in david's case dr tombstone and that just adds a layer of anonymity and i think that's what draws um so many people to these apps. Uh, Nicole was a vulnerable underage girl, and David was a predator who wanted to speak to who wanted to speak to underage children. And I think uh, Kick, just because of the anonymity it provided, was the perfect uh, conduit for them to talk. And um, did uh. Um, so I was wondering, like, with regards to all the social media, social media platforms and just communication using these um, anonymous apps, how do you think apps could impose guidelines and stricter rules for users? So I think uh, in many cases, these apps are actively trying to avoid imposing stricter guidelines and stricter rules just because, as I mentioned before, their selling point is the uh, anonymous nature they provide. But I think um, if they were to implement something, I think a good first step would just be um, perhaps they could keep their anonymous usernames, but they could also uh, make it so that you had to verify with a form of ID or something who you were in real life, just so it wasn't completely anonymous. Like I remember, um, yeah, I remember Facebook once actually didn't believe that uh, my name was a real name, so I had to send in my ID uh, just to prove that, you know, I actually existed as a person. And I think um, these anonymous, these other anonymous social media apps could do something similar like that just with all of their users. And if, uh, you know, if their users are underage and they don't have ID to send in, then they could explicitly require maybe their parents' ID or their parents' ex permission, signed permission somehow, um, just for their children to be on this app. Um, and yeah, I guess with regards to this case, how 
do, like in your personal opinion, do you think it's even safe to have these apps? Um, and what purpose do they do you think they really have? I mean, there's a lot of different platforms, whether it be Kick um, or even something like Omegle, where you're completely anonymous. And I mean, in this case, in this scenario, if they didn't have this pen pal like service um, with an anonymous anonymous um, like profile behind it, they could have completely stopped this or at least prevented something like this happening. Um, I mean, I understand people want to communicate and want to build friendships and stuff like that, but there should be some kind of um, layer of protection or added protection that that can prevent situations like this. Um, because it, it seems like there was um, some taking advantage and taking advantage of like a, a person that was that was yeah, who's vulnerable. Yeah, she was very vulnerable in the situation. Yeah, but I think um, I think the apps just don't care. I think that's part of the like. I think the anonymity is just part of what you know necessitates their existence. Like people like people enjoy being anonymous on the internet, and these apps really make it easy for them. And I think as long as people want to, you know, chat with people across the globe, across the country want to find new friends to make, I think the apps will continue to exist. Even if um even if the cases like this pop up every now and then. So yeah, I think uh I think overall just um the nature of the internet, these apps uh are here to stay at this point. I think the only way that they could possibly be regulated is just by themselves taking responsibility for cases like these and imposing guidelines or strict rules. But I really don't see that happening, at least at least not unless something super drastic happens that uh, kind of causes them to, f forces them to impose guidelines and strict rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and another thing I want to bring up is... Uh, for this investigation, the the FBI analyst actually found the the usernames and passwords for Nicole's account on um on her bedroom wall. I just uh, I just think of how difficult it may have been for the investigation to proceed if Nicole didn't have any of her passwords or usernames on the wall. I mean, I mean, yeah, that that is that is very interesting to think about. But I'm I'm sure they could have like tapped into her IP address and just see where. Um, where a lot of the data was coming from, uh, or being received on her phone, so they could have they could have seen which apps were were taking up this data source. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it is it is really crazy to think about. It's and honestly, um, this case reminds me of a lot, of a lot about the Adnan Syed story um, that had popped on the Crime Podcast uh, about ten or so years ago, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that was also a very prominent case in Maryland, if not the whole country. I mean, it, it blew up across all social media platforms. I believe it's the most listened to podcast of all time. So it, it does parallel a way to this case, um, at least okay. from like geographic wise. What is that? What are the, some of the other parallels that you've noticed? I mean, it, it seems like from what I remember, I mean, like a lot of the individuals are young. I know Adnan, um, when he had when like everything first occurred he was also in high school or or close to college aged um i mean he was he was involved with a girl also similar age i mean 
uh, it just like a lot of a lot of conflicting stories. Um, so it's very hard to really see um, like what what really transpired. Um, but I guess with with Natalie trying to appeal her that her trial was unfair and being denied, it really shows that um, that the jury and the judicial system believed that the result of this case was the one that was justified and um, most apparent based on the data and all the evidence that was provided. Yeah, considering that they came to their conclusion in like just over an hour, I think the evidence pretty strongly points to Natalie being guilty. And I don't think any amount of appealing is going to really help her case. She actually yeah. has an opportunity to contest her denied appeal again from the Virginia Supreme Court. And I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure just given the, um, like how many times she's appealed already that she'll try for that again. Yeah. Oh yeah. With, with the, like everything that transpired in the case, do you know at all how Nicole's parents are, um, what are the what they're doing now, or like how everything's going on with them? Uh, yeah. Like, have they ha sorry. Like, have they have they said anything about how they've been coping or dealing with uh, the loss of their daughter? Yeah, actually, let me pull up. Uh, I saw this one thing actually. So her father, David Lovell, said he's been diagnosed with severe depression and post-traumatic stress disorder since his daughter's death. And some of his statements show that he thinks that Natalie's and David's punishments weren't harsh enough. While um, Nicole's mom, uh, Tammy Weeks, said she sees a grief counselor and she still has trouble sleeping. And she, she said she celebrated what would have been her daughter's... She said she celebrates each year what would have been her daughter's birthday uh, every year at her gravesite, actually. And on January 27th, which is the day Nicole was abducted, the family plans a vigil every year. And Tammy updates a, reg a Facebook page regularly called Voices for Nicole Lovell uh, pretty regularly, maybe sometimes even daily. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that um, she'll continue to keep updating this page. Well, I guess, I guess after hearing about this case, um, in your, like, from what you've heard or, or read about in the past, are there any similar cases to the one that happened to Nicole? Yeah, actually, at the time of Nicole's abduction, there was a similar case happening in Washington, uh, 2,500 miles away in the state of Washington. Uh, there was this girl named Elizabeth Syrochin, which was, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, and she was 15 years old and was secretly dating a 30-year-old. And... Uh, Elizabeth had actually told this to uh, her best friend, and she had also mentioned that um, on a certain night, they were planning on running away together. This 30-year-old would drive like 300 miles to Washington, and he would pick her up, and they would run away. And he, she told this to her best friend, and her best friend told uh, her mom. And her best friend's mom told Elizabeth's parents. So at this point, Elizabeth's parents are freaking out, uh, the best friend's mom had told them on the day that they were planning on running away. So Elizabeth's parents at this point are freaking out. They lock Elizabeth in her room. They create like um, they get a group of people together with weapons, and uh, they call the police to try and get some assistance. But the police say they can't do anything unless the guy actually shows up at their house. 
So, so they're trying to convince this guy to show up, saying, uh, uh, like they took they took Elizabeth's phone, and they impersonated her, messaging this thirty year old guy driving down, saying that they're excited to see him and that they basically encourage him to keep driving down. And uh, when he shows up, the father holds him at gunpoint in his car, making sure he doesn't leave until the police come. And uh, yeah, so he gets arrested. And later, Elizabeth realizes that you know, she was in a really dangerous situation and that she should have never been in that situation to begin with. And I think that really shows that... Um, like at such a young age, it's easy for these underage children to convince themselves that what they're doing is the cool thing, talking to someone so much older, so much wiser, so much uh, more experienced. But I think uh, like as they grow older, they realize that it's, it's really wrong what the older person is doing to them, is uh, causing them to lie to their parents, lie to the everyone they know. And it's just... Uh, unnatural and illegal. Yeah, no, I mean that that is that is pretty insane. Especially, I see a lot of parallels in this case and the one uh, that you just didn't mention. I guess going back to the whole Nicole case, um, I did remember you mentioned the sentencing length. I mean, there's what is it about twenty five, thirty year difference um, in sentencing between uh, Natalie and uh, and David. What do you think could have been the discrepancy? I know, I mean, I know. She was the accessory to murder, and he he actually got charged with the murder. But I mean, it seems like they were both at a huge fault in this kind of regards. And twenty five, thirty years is pretty significant. So, is there anything in your in your mind um, that you can think of that could have caused this um, difference in in length of sentence that both have to serve? Yeah. So David has to serve fifty years. And Nally has to serve 40 years before they're released on probation. So it's only 10 year difference. And honestly, given the, I actually think the opposite of you. I think that, I think that their sentencing is very close and uh, like just based on what they're being charged for, I honestly thought that Nally would get lower than 40 years. But I think uh, just because of, you know, Natalie trying to pin it on David, but then these text messages showing that everything she's saying is completely false and that at times she's the one trying to, uh, like, uh, comfort David, trying to actively trying to make a plan with him. Uh, I think that really demonstrated the jury that, you know, a lot of what she was saying was unreliable and that this is just a case of the her defense team trying to uh, trying to argue a perspective that isn't really true. And I think that's why the jury, uh, they just decide on 40 years, um, pretty close to David's 50 years, and they decided after deliberating for such a short amount of time. And as for David, um, he got 50 years and the rest on probation. And I think, um, I think that's pretty standard for cases like these. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly just surprised that Natalie's and David's uh, sentencing lengths were pretty similar. Yeah, I mean, you did you did also mention that um, that Natalie had multiple like psychological conditions. Um, I mean, you did you did mention the borderline personality disorder. I was wondering, was there anything else that came about that that showed up in the case, or that the 
uh, clinical psychologists or the physicians that had named um, were other pre-existing conditions that that arise or or also about David. I mean, did did he suffer from any kind of um, mental illnesses? So, yeah. So David was actually diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder uh, during his trial, and his legal team tried to use this as to show that he could easily be manipulated. And he was easily prone to, you know, following others. And I think um, some of the people they got to testify on his behalf, some of his old teachers, some of his old classmates also said something similar, saying that if David was convinced that someone else was correct, then he would follow them off a cliff. Like he was very uh, easy to manipulate, was, trying, was basically what they were trying to get at. Trying to show that Natalie was a mastermind. Whereas Natalie, uh, on the other hand, was diagnosed with uh, around six to seven different uh, mental disorders, including schizophrenia and borderline personality disorder. I'm, I'm unsure of the other ones. And there's actually parts of her interview with the uh, police, with, the, with her legal team, where she says that, I just thought it was a fantasy, what I was doing. I just thought it was make-believe. I didn't even realize that. David was actually going to do this. I was just playing along with him. Yeah, that is that is pretty interesting. I mean, with hearing about the background with all their the psychiatric conditions, um, I mean, what what I find is is very interesting to even hear about is how quick they were to turn on each other. Um, I mean, they had such a um, a long going relationship with each other, and just how on the split of a dime they're able to turn on each other. I mean, I understand the gravity of the case, but still, it's it's interesting to hear how um, they're able to oppose each other like that so so fast. Yeah, so this, so their arrest was actually in January of their freshman year of college. So at this point, they had known each other for at most uh, since September or August, so like four months. I think uh, this is a case where they became quick friends in college, but you know, since they haven't known each other for so long, it's pretty easy to turn on each other and convince yourself that it was definitely the other person who made me do it and not something that uh, I actively tried to do. And that was the, basically the defense that both of their teams tried to adopt. They're so quick to turn on each other because of this, because uh, throwing the other person out of the bus makes it so that they get a lower sentencing. And I think this is a lot of this is a strategy that a lot of legal teams pursue, and that a strategy that a lot of um, suspects aren't afraid to adopt either. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I very much agree with that. Well, yeah, I, I know this is like a layman's perspective, but yeah, I mean, you see this on TV shows all the time with them turning on each other. Um, so it's, I guess, it's not really as as surprising as um, as I thought on first hand, but. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Um, I do agree with that. Yeah, they're just trying to get a lower sentencing. And yeah. in Natalie's case, um, I'm sure she's going to keep appealing her case. But surprisingly, David hasn't appealed. So, yeah, maybe maybe he really was feeling guilty. And that's why he changed his plea at the end. Uh, yeah, but I guess we'll never know for sure. And uh, I think that's all we got for today, actually. So. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to our first episode of the podcast. And stay tuned for our second episode. Please excuse us if we messed up anything or 
our ums and our ahs. We're a brand new podcast and we're still learning. And let us know if you want us to cover any cases in particular. Uh, we're still exploring topics. And we plan to have uh, people with a criminal record on within the coming months. Uh, we're, we're still sending out emails, sending out letters, and we plan to hear back uh, from them pretty soon. And we'll let you guys awesome. know in the next episode. Yeah, th thanks again for having me on the show, Steve. I, uh, I really enjoyed this opportunity.